This is the current federal tax developments for the week of October 30th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers. I'm recording on the road right now. I'm out of town and in Boise, Idaho today. Um, but anyway, I'm working on some stuff. So getting a few things put together. So let's go ahead and we'll talk about what we have this week, what's going on, what's happened in taxes, and uh, maybe what you need to be aware of. First this week, we're going to talk about a case that finally got to a Circuit Court of Appeals that looks at the Boyle case as applied to electronic filing by a tax professional. Now, if a tax professional does electronic filing, the question is, does the Boyle case, which still requires the taxpayer to be totally responsible for assuring a return actually gets filed, does that still apply in the age of e-filing? Secondly, we're going to talk to a case about whether the IRS could assert a negligence penalty after having failed to get supervisory approval for asserting a substantial understatement penalty. Both are penalties under 6662, and the question is going to be if the IRS fails to get supervisory approval, which is required before the penalties communicate to the taxpayer the decision to apply it, in theory, they've lost their ability to do a penalty. Could they do that by switching to another option? In this case, the question of negligence or not paying attention to the rules as opposed to the straight-up substantial understatement penalty. Finally, we'll discuss about the IRS making the temporary electronic signature program permanent by moving it into the Internal Revenue Manual. We'll talk a little bit about what that program is, maybe what it means, and then also you know, what ended up happening this week. So let's start out here with the case, Lee versus United States. It is an 11th Circuit case from and case number 22-10793 that was issued on October the 24th of 2023. If we go back historically in the case of United States versus Boyle, which was a U.S. Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court ruled that reliance on an agent to file a return is never by itself a reasonable cause for late filing of a return. That is, filing a return is effectively a non-delegatable duty of the taxpayer to assure it happens in a timely manner, and you cannot claim reasonable cause because you're relying upon, let's say, your tax professional to file an extension for you, but they didn't, or that you were depending upon them to file a tax return, that you had given them everything to get that refiled by the due date, and they failed to do it. In the Boyle case, dealt with paper filing of returns, but now we're going to talk about the issue of how does that apply in the world of electronic filing. In 2019, the Supreme Court in the Haynes case noted that this was still a question to be determined as far as electronic filing went. That while we had some guidance here in the non-e-file world, we didn't really have any guidance in e-file as to what that might do, whether e-filing changed this in any way, shape, or form, or whether e-file kept it the same. Now, we did have some trial courts, and those trial courts had pretty much unanimously concluded that the Boyle case applied, which means that, essentially, Boyle was going to be considered to be the case that you would follow, and therefore, if a tax preparer that had been given the signed authorization to electronically file the return failed to do so, the taxpayer would still be held responsible for late filing of the return, 
and could not get out of late filing penalties by arguing that the taxpayer had reasonable cause for late filing because they had reasonably depended upon the tax professional to file the return. Would a circuit agree with that? Well, the 11th Circuit notes that they are the first circuit to take the matter directly on. In this case, it is key to the final decision. In the prior case, the 5th Circuit kind of worked around the decision. It didn't really matter. They found other grounds on which to determine that the taxpayer had not exercised reasonable cause. But now we're going to look at the actual issue of electronic filing, how it works. In this case, the taxpayer had hired a CPA to prepare tax returns from 2014 through 2016. Now, as crazy as it seems, it seems like the CPA never got around to actually filing the returns. However, they prepared the returns. The taxpayer reviewed the returns, looked at the filing authorization, signed the authorization, and returned it to the CPA each year before the due date in question. However, he had a large refund each year, and that's part of the reason what covered this up for a while. So they applied the refunds to estimates for the following year, and also why it finally became a problem when the IRS finally raised the issue after the 2016 return was completed. The fact was the CPA had never filed any of the returns from 2015 to 2016. So the returns ended up being non-filed returns at the end of the day. Now, as they said, the court tells us in giving the summary that Lee submitted the tax returns for 2014 through 2016 and 2018, right? Okay, now, the look-back period for calculating the credits began in June of 2015. This is after he'd been contacted by the IRS and saying, hey, you never filed these returns, and we determined that, right? Now, Lee made no 2014 tax payments after April 2015. So when they got the four returns in, 14, 15, 1456 had three returns in, they disallowed the 2014 overpayment of $288,409. That was not available to offset taxes in 15 and 16 because the return had never been filed. And because of that, he had given up the right to apply it to the future years because too much time had passed by the time the return was filed. So in August 2019, Lee paid the IRS $289,183.14. That basically settled the outstanding tax liabilities and all the penalties. So he's caught up, he's paid it in, but now Mr. Lee wants a refund of the taxes. He filed a claim for refund, which the IRS, of course, denied. He then went to the district court, and the district court did not uphold his claim for refund, stating that Boyle applied, and because of that, Mr. Lee could not say, hey, I reasonably attempted to timely file the returns, and, you know, it was the CPA that fouled up. So at the very least, even if I can't get the application of the tax, I should be able to avoid the penalties that applied to my 2015 and 2016 return. Ah, district court said, no, I don't get anything. So he took the case up on appeal and he had three arguments that he stated trying to indicate why, understanding fully that the Boyle case was out there, why this case was different. Now, first, he said he had exercised reasonable cause by assuming that this gentleman would go ahead and file the returns. Now, that appears to be a failure right to start from Boyle, but he said things had changed given electronic filing. 
And so he ultimately says Boyle does not apply to e-filed returns. And in any event, you know, because of the complications of e-filing, even if the mere failure of the agent to file the returns cannot be justifications for failure to file, nevertheless, he should be able to use the fact that he had all of these other steps. He couldn't e-file it himself, at least not directly. So he had to rely on some party to handle the e-filing. And he had relied upon the CPA who appeared competent to do so. And then third, he attempted to claim that in any event, the IRS had improperly assessed the penalties in his case. As we'll discover, this third argument didn't ever really get decided because there was a problem with when he presented this argument, as opposed to whether or not the argument is correct, which the court just didn't need to talk about. Now, let's talk about Boyle case and electronic filing. As I mentioned to begin with, the Boyle case tells us that a taxpayer essentially can never delegate the requirement to get the return timely filed. Now, he argued, did he, Mr. Lee, that the Form 8879 means the electronic filing is fundamentally different from a paper filed return. The electronic filing authorization form, Form 8879, is signed by the taxpayer, allows the tax preparer to input the signature or a code that equals the taxpayer's signature onto the return, and then the, ta then the electronic return originator, in this case the CPA, is supposed to submit that return to the IRS to complete the filing process. The taxpayer said in Boyle, he had authorized preparing the return, but in this case, the return was fully prepared before the 8879 was filed. As we noted, Mr. Lee reviewed the return that he was given. The return was done. It had been completed. It was not as it was in Boyle that the return never got completed. The return was completed. He'd reviewed it. He said, go ahead, file this, signed off. Everything was great, except it turns out it didn't get filed. Now, as noted here, he said, look, as a taxpayer, as the client, there is absolutely nothing left for me to do once I sign the 8879, right? I, there are no other steps for me to complete. So his argument is he had done everything required of him to get the return filed. Therefore, Boyle should not apply. The 11th Circuit disagreed. It, had, it states that Boyle still applies even in the electronic filing context. And they look at it through a number of different theories. They first note that 8879 merely authorizes taxpayer to sign a return and permit it. But that's the same, but that's not the same as having it filed by merely signing the form. The return does not get filed at that point. There are still steps left to go. And that's true whether or not you are doing an 8879 and having the preparer submit it, or even if let's say a taxpayer is using TurboTax and had reviewed the return and then tells Intuit, go ahead and submit it, there are still steps remaining in the process. So you still have a duty to supervise the filing and assure it actually happens. And this is a fundamentally dangerous, uh, let's say, position if you are a tax professional, because it does mean that you have an exposure should you fail to get the return properly accepted by the IRS, or at least determine it won't be accepted and advise the taxpayer what to do. 
I remember for years, we would be told by insurance carriers that we never should go ahead and tell a client, oh, we'll go ahead and mail the return in for you, right? We'll take care of that filing because then you are now, you know, you have this issue because since the taxpayer can't delegate that, you have agreed to take on a non-delegable duty. The taxpayer cannot get rid of the penalty in that case. So you open yourself up to the penalty should this thing not get filed. And that's a key problem that electronic filing opens up. And honestly, a concern a lot of us had from early on in the electronic filing process, it doesn't help that the IRS is pushing this idea, which they are. Due to the fact the return was e-filed, you know, he claimed, well, I'd exercise proper reasonable care to assure it was filed. Again, the 11th Circuit disagreed. They do look at the duties of an ERO. And one of the things that's pointed out from the actual IRS, you know, publication 1345 that controls what electronic return originators are supposed to do, which is basically all of us. We originate the return. We're normally not the transmitter, but we are the originator. And the ERO is given certain things. Now, the IRS makes it clear. An ERO may also perform tax preparation services. In fact, probably for everybody listening to this program, you, you perform both ERO and tax preparation services. But it's distinct. Um, for a taxpayer e-filing the return, it notes that the ERO is usually the first point of contract. They can originate in several ways, including by electronically sending the return to a transmitter that will transmit the return to the IRS by directly transmitting. Again, most of us who are using tax software are sending it on to the transmitter, which would be, you know, in my case, Thomson Reuters. In other cases, using the CERT would be Intuit. In other cases, using, you know, ProFX or access, it would be Tom, it would be Walters Kluwer's, basically CCH. We also have a very direct rule that an ERO cannot stockpile returns, which they define as waiting more than three calendar days to submit returns to the IRS after they have all necessary information for origination of the return. And normally that last piece of information to originate the return is the signature on the electronic filing form. Now, in this case, the taxpayer is saying, look, this guy had to transmit it within three days. He couldn't stockpile, right? He can't hold back. So if he just forgets to do it, and it's not clear if he forgot to do it, or as I think happens way too often to a lot of professionals, they never check to see if it's rejected or accepted, right? I think that's where we see a lot of problems here that taxpayer, that preparers may just assume a return is accepted and not notice when it rejects. And that's a problem down that path right? The taxpayer argued that those duties I just described from publication 1345 means effectively that the IRS has transferred the responsibility once the taxpayer has gotten an 8879 in, once they've gotten the authorization to e-file back to the CPA, that now the CPA carries all the responsibilities going forward and that the taxpayer is done with what they need to do to have exercised reasonable care to assure the return was filed timely. Well, the court says there are a number of objections to this. First, and this is one that even the Fifth Circuit hinted at, or I've seen hinted at by a couple of trial courts, the law still allows the taxpayer to say, give me a paper copy, and I will mail in the paper copy. He also could have prepared his own return and either supervised electronic filing directly 
which means he would have, let's say, used TurboTax online. He would have then submitted the return to the IRS. And of course, Intuit would have told him that he has to check back and make sure it's accepted. And he could have done that. So said, you can do this. There are ways to do this without going out and hiring the ERO. You know, you can do your own electronic filing using an online service, or you can go ahead and just paper file. Only the pay, well, the paid preparer is required to electronic file, electronically file returns they prepare unless a taxpayer asks for it to be paper filed. Nothing prevents the individual taxpayer from paper filing that return. Now, this interesting justification because we get to business returns, there are cases where you really, you know, the taxpayer can't just simply say, I don't want electronic file. You know, there, in essence, there has to be other things done. This could be interesting if the court relied on this, but the court doesn't really, right? The taxpayer electronic filing document taxpayer relies upon notes and electronic return is not considered filed until the IRS acknowledges acceptance of the return. This strongly implies that the client should be checking with the CPA and either getting the acknowledgements of acceptance back in a timely manner or, you know, follow through on that. In essence, making sure that that's done timely is something that the tax the taxpayer has as a responsibility. And we should all be aware that as electronic return originators, we do have a duty to notify taxpayers if their return has been accepted, right? When the return is accepted, we send notification out. Now, in many cases, our tax software may take care of that. If you provide an ad, if you provide an email address, it may email out the notices that, hey, everything got accepted to the taxpayer. It could be sent out by a you know, you may do it by postal. In fact, some, I believe the old CCH, when we use CCH, did have an option to have them mail it to the client. We never used that because we're a little bit concerned about the client getting this mailing from a odd, you know, an address that appeared to be the claim it was coming from us, but was actually written in a way that, uh, you know, it made a very clear envelope had not come from us. What they really say is the only thing the taxpayers, it is very clear the CPA failed to perform his duties to the extent he was supposed to do so under the law. He basically has, and in fact, we know in this case that the client had reached a settlement with the CPA firm about botching this. And I wouldn't doubt that one of the requirements before the CPA firm, probably their insurer, would pay on this was to go ahead and force it up through the Court of Appeals. So it's maybe more the CPA firm was pushing this case than the taxpayer, because I think the taxpayer may have an agreement to be made whole, but nevertheless, that is the only approach. You have a right to go in state law, sue the CPA or the other tax pro, and you know get reimbursed from them for the damages they've caused. But the IRS still gets to apply the penalty, and you're going to be penalized for this purpose. They did not find that you know because of electronic filing, these were matters beyond the taxpayer's control. As the court noted, if they accepted that theory, the electronic filing was so complicated that a taxpayer could not reasonably be expected to actually confirm that the true filing had taken place, well, that would open the door to everybody being able to claim that, you know, they, they could file late because e-filing is such a complex thing that a taxpayer reasonably shouldn't be expected to do that. Probably only CPAs, EAs, 
and maybe some attorneys who are in tax would be the only ones who could understand the process that we're not going to do that. You're not going to get out of filing. You know, we're not going to open up a late filing loophole for everybody by going down that route. As I say, this case strongly implies, and the concurring decision makes it very clear, that it strongly implies that the taxpayer must understand the need to get the e-filing acceptance documents. Now, the concurrence was also very, very uh, critical of the IRS in the theory that they don't have to react this way. You know, they, they could actually accept it as reasonable cause if the taxpayer had taken all actions and it was the e-filing, the, e the originator that caused the problem. But the IRS has decided not to go that route. And under the law, they don't have to go the route. Is it counterproductive? I think it very well may be, because I guarantee you, based on this case, you're going to see some people recommending the taxpayers paper file the return because paper filing and mailing the return themselves is, the, in their theory, the only way to make sure the process worked in a way that you could prove by getting your certified mail receipt. Right, we've talked about that before. You have the white piece of paper stamped by the U.S. Postal Service clerk that shows the date, which is the date on or before the day of the return. That means that the return has been filed in a timely manner. That's proof of that, and it's considered proof that it was delivered. And it's up to the IRS to show that it wasn't, which they will never be able to prove because they have to admit they lose documents. IRS has admitted that in multiple cases, and it would not be considered reasonable by most any court for them to say somehow they have never lost a document. They can, and they do. So that's in the mix. Now, they did finally attempt to raise the issue that the IRS could not impose a penalty under 6651A2 if it disallows a credit after the return is filed. But they had not raised that question at the trial court. So regardless of whether their theory was correct, it's not getting its day in court because they had to raise that with the trial court. You're not allowed to raise new issues generally at the court of appeals level if they weren't raised by the trial court. The court of appeals will tell you they are not a trial court. They are not the party there to, you know, they're not, they're not the party there to retry the entire case. That is why the district court exists. You present everything to them and then the Court of Appeals will take a look and review the decision. But they're not there to allow you to open up whole brand new segments. So that particular argument, while you'll see it referenced in the case, uh, we don't really know anything about how good that argument might be, whether it could work or not, because it just never was decided. Next, another case, Kelly versus Commissioner, Task Group Memorandum Decision 2023-126, issued on October the 23rd. Now, this is one of those returns filed asserting various discredited arguments about why these people's wages should not be subject to income tax at all. Basically, what we used to call tax protester arguments, uh, things that had fought, you know, fallen down in flames for years, all of that standard stuff. So we have a return here that they filed where they claimed a refund for all of their wages. And as not surprisingly, if you've worked with the IRS very much, some of these get paid out, which this one did. 
Now, later, the automated reporting system issued a notice of deficiency and added a substantial underpayment penalty under 6662A, referencing 6662B2. That is when you underpay your taxes by more than $5,000 or 10% of the tax actually due, whichever is greater. In that case, you will be considered to have an automatic 20% penalty. But there is a problem the IRS ran into. And this came up with a case a couple of years ago, which continues to reverberate throughout the IRS. But under 6751, it is required that supervisory approval be granted, be given to any penalty assessment. So, you know, the agent has to get the supervisor to sign off on it before it is first communicated to the taxpayer that the penalty is going to be asserted. In this case, with the automated reporting system at that time, they essentially just automatically did it and nobody approved it. So the bottom line problem was in this case, that's considered to be a flaw and the penalty was barred. Now the penalty under 6062, there are eight different criteria and generally if any of them is triggered, then there is a 20% penalty, except for the substantial, uh, basically the substantial misvaluation penalty, gross gross misvaluation penalty, in which case the penalty would go to 40%. So what the IRS did in this case, as I said, this one was 5,000, but the same, now I won't say the same penalty because that gets into the issue in this case, but in another 20% penalty, because that's how the court's going to view it, is available if you could show that the the understatement of tax was due to negligence or disregard of the rules. Now, the difference in this penalty is this penalty requires the burdens on the IRS to carry the day. On the substantial understatement penalty, the burdens on the taxpayer to show they had substantial authority for the position claimed or to show they had acted reasonably, they had reasonable cause which means acting reasonably and in good faith in attempting to properly determine their tax liability. So what the IRS said was, well, okay, we we can't win the automatic understatement because we we didn't get supervisory approval before we told them we were going to be after that. So in their answer to the court, they said, okay, we accept we can't go with that one, but we're now going to say that rather they owe a penalty under 6662B1, which is the straight up negligence or disregard of the rules penalty. And that one they got approval on before the answer was filed. They're saying, hey, we're there. Now, the taxpayer notes that both of these are 6662A penalties or the 20% penalties. It's just another one of the clauses under 6662 for applying this 20% 6662A penalty, right? So what they're saying is, wait, this isn't fair. This is a 6662 penalty. And they blew it by not using, by not getting approval for 66B2. They can't basically recover that entire issue by going back and saying, okay, B1, negligence now. You had negligence. Now, let's be honest, as a tax protest type case, the bottom line is they're going to lose negligence, right? While the burden's on the IRS to prove negligence, it's not going to be a really tough burden given how much work the taxpayer has done to show that they really paid no attention whatsoever to, you know, to basically decisions from years 
other things, they just kind of asserted that the tax couldn't apply, which, yeah, you know, j just telling a court that this isn't the case and this is how the law works. Lecturing a court doesn't tend to work well. It's, you know, when the courts have already decided, Supreme Court decided, you know, nope, you can't keep arguing that. So that's considered to be negligence when you prepare the return, relying upon that stuff. So really, they needed the court to say, sorry, IRS, all of the 6662 penalties are the same penalty. They're all basically penalties for, you know, a misstatement of your tax. And we do know this bit. So as I said, supervisory approval obtained before forced formal communication. So they said, look, that broad umbrella of 662A taints any attempt to use an alternative clause under A. But the court did not agree. What the court points out is, if they followed the Kelly's interpretation on this one, it would allow, let's assume the IRS had gotten supervisory approval under 6662A, you know, for the B2 penalty. Well, they could have turned around and also assessed penalties, including the 40% gross valuation misstatement penalty or 6662B3, just like at random, throw them on at this point with no additional supervisory uh, support looking at the ass assessment. And looking at go at this number, they're going to say, look, we can just do it because since all 6662 penalties are one, we could throw these other in here under the initial 6662A penalty. All of them are covered by the same supervisory approval. The court says, no, each cause would need its own approval, but that does mean that merely blowing one of them doesn't blow everything. Therefore, each of those causes is a separate penalty for approval purposes. That's how this will work. Finally, we're going to talk about the IRS updating to the revenue manual. At section 10.10.1, IRS Electronic Signature e-signature program issued on October 17th. This was an update to the IRM. Now, the IRS decided to officially extend a program that began in August 2020, with more forms added in November 2021 when it was extended again. This was a COVID situation, and one of the big ones in there was the Form 706 estate tax return. You know, there were lots of cases there, especially early in the COVID pandemic, where an elderly surviving spouse might not want to come in and sign pen and ink, you know, the 706 with the CPA and a, and a party there to witness it and all the other things necessary to do that together. But they also couldn't really handle doing it totally on their own. So was there a way that we could allow them to electronically sign that form? where we could like go on to Zoom or on to FaceTime or on to Microsoft Teams, Google Meet, and just kind of walk them through that process, but not have to worry about getting this phone book of a return, which a 706 often is, you know, sent to them physically, signed by them, and then somehow having them also be able to ship that package back to us because shipping the package back to us probably also meant that they would need to probably go to the post office, uh, mailboxes, et cetera, UBS store, whatever you call them, and, you know, be in that environment again where they could be exposed to the COVID virus. And, you know, they just didn't want to do that. So this e-file program was put together. Now, the temporary program, like I said, started August 2020, 
In November of 21, more forms were added to this program, and it was extended through October of, that really should be October of 2023. So it just recently expired that we had this program that was expired. You may remember the initial program came out with a couple of memos and some additional documentation and some IRS news releases. And they indicated the program was temporary, but they were considering what they should do afterwards. They finally decided to add the, the list of forms that were, in essence, the list you found in the November after they added more to it was added at Internal Revenue Manual Exhibit 10.10.1-2, Deviation from Handwritten Signature Requirement for Limited List of Tax Forms Memorandum. That was added to the Internal Revenue Manual. And that exhibit is pretty much what we found in the, uh, you know, basically in the memorandums we had before, aside from we didn't explain the whole COVID problem and the issue, and we were considering the future. Right, it said that. One of the things it says is the exhibit states that electronic and digital signatures may appear in many form when printed and may be created by many different technologies. No specific technology is required for these forms. Now, again, these are forms you did not have an, an other way to submit, or at least most of them were. 8879 is one key exception because it's in the list, but it's also one that had other ways of getting accepted. But like, you know, the electronic filing authorization for corporations, literally until we got to this program, had to be signed by a taxpayer in pen and ink. It had to be a pen and ink signature. There was no authorization, even using knowledge-based authentication, to allow electronic signing of that form. You know, the best you probably could do arguably was if you had remote access software and you were willing to let them remotely access your machine, which is a whole nother set of issues that would open up, but let's say you did, that they could have keyed in their pin, you know, whatever they were going to use to sign a return, they could have keyed it in remotely. But that was probably the best you could get to in terms of allowing them to do it remotely. Otherwise, you would need to have these papers signed physically, right? Now, the one thing is when the memos came out, especially in COVID, and again, the theory is this is to get an electronic signature on a piece of paper, which is then sent to the IRS. Now, what they don't tell us, and this is important for the 8879s, is whether or not this guidance, if you're following it, the 8879 and other authorization forms. Previously, the IRS said you could use electronic signatures with those forms, but only if you went through knowledge-based authentication. Now, the Internal Revenue Manual does not itself seem to automatically require that you use KBA, but we certainly know that KBA is something that has approval. So now we get into this issue. Does, can you get authorization? Can you get without going through KBA? The one thing that is very clear from the Internal Revenue Manual is you definitely need some form of authentication. And it actually goes back to a tax court case we talked about a couple of years ago, where they noted that you could not at the time electronically sign a 1040X but the court in criticizing the IRS for taking this slow process in approving electronic signatures, despite Congress saying, please IRS speed this up, was that you know, authentication is required anytime we accept a taxpayer's signature. We have to have some evidence. It's really the taxpayer that signed the form, even in a pen and ink situation. We need to know it was actually the taxpayer that did or have some reasonable uh, reason to believe it was them. And, you know, 
if we if we get a signature, let's say for an 8879, a physically signed form. Now the client may have signed it in front of us, in which case then, yeah, we have evidence, but the client might have just, you know, signed it, put it in an envelope, mailed it to us. Do we know it was signed by the client? Probably not. And, you know, we had a case a couple of years ago where you remember the wife wouldn't sign a form and somehow magically the son, you know, was be sent by dad to go get mom to sign it. And magically a signature would appear there that when we got to trial, everybody agreed was not mom's signature after it was reviewed. Uh, yeah, you know, we're not, though those aren't really being authenticated, shall we say, in the full way. Now, I don't think you're required to go watch the client sign it in pen and ink, but it does open up this issue. My take is you would use for 8879s, non-KBA systems at your own risk. I think during the pandemic, it probably made sense to interpret this, that KBA wasn't necessary. It's still weird that 8879s in the list when they already had a method for doing it. It suggests it's an alternative method, but it doesn't suggest why it's alternative or what's the difference. So a little bit weird, but still there. In any event, this has now been extended in some form, not only just extended, it's been made permanent. So at least you might wanna study this, see what your take is on what type of backup you need, but it also means you clearly can use uh, electronic signatures for corporate authorizations and things like that. So at least that, even if you decide you wanna use KBA to go with it, you still can use it under this program from the Internal Revenue Manual. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of October 30th, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your stateside CPAs. Hopefully, I will see you next week when I'm back in Phoenix and I'll have a full weekend in Phoenix to actually, you know, do this. This week, I was returning from a conference for the Washington Society of CPAs from Seattle. And so I had just, just, you know, a few hours on Saturday at home and then I immediately fly out on Sunday. So, you know, to go to my other problems, not problem, but other issues here in Idaho. So basically, you know, I didn't have much time to work it. This week we will have more time to work it. So we'll see if we, you know, don't get quite as rushed, but otherwise come back here, see what's going on. If you have any questions, email me at zollers at currentfulltaxonomist.com. You can also find I follow along on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington. And I do take a look at the Idaho Society's discussion boards. If you want to look in there, if you're posting a question, we can look there. But otherwise, thank you for watching this week or listening this week. And we will see you next week with more current federal tax development.